and good morning. How's everyone doing today? Really? Okay, good. Thanksgiving is coming. I don't know if you guys know this thing on Thursday. Okay. Now I'm curious, how many people are already listening to Christmas music? Just, okay. And how many, then, how many Grinches do we have? Okay. That's my opinion. Okay, it's Christmas time is basically from the day after Thanksgiving until Thanksgiving of the next year. Okay, so that's not the word, that's just me, but I'll just put it out there. Uh, So we're in Acts 17, and uh, I mentioned that too because this week is sort of our last week in the book of Acts before we start our Advent series, our Christmas series starting next week. Um, So we're going to drop it off here, and then we'll pick it up uh, in January. We'll begin again. So we're here in Acts 17, and we have again, uh, as, as Josh read so well for us, another one of this, this uh, series, this repeating pattern of Paul and his missionary colleagues entering a town, uh, finding usually the synagogue, if there is one, they share about Christ. Some number of people begin to follow Jesus, and then usually, eventually, whether it's in a day or a week or a month or a year, they're run out of town. And this happened in Antioch, it happened in Derby, it happens every single time. And and in fact, we're going to see more and more of these kinds of stories as we go on. Uh, The next one in Athens, uh, when we pick back up in January. And with so many stories with the same sort of structure, they come into town, they proclaim, they get kicked out, they come into town. You might wonder, how are we supposed to learn something new from each one of these very similar episodes. What keeps this part of Acts from becoming sort of a series of rerun episodes and sermons? I often tell community group leaders that the word is given to us not only for our information, but for our transformation. How is each one of these meant to make us uh, more like Jesus in a special, unique way? Uh, We say we need the whole Bible to become whole disciples of Jesus, and Acts 17 has something for us to say as well. Uh, And if we dig deeper into these individual episodes, what we see is that the author, Luke, often gives us little hints and clues in the details of the passage that uh, that reveal his emphasis. And I hope you noticed as as, uh, Josh was reading that we have two cities here. We have Thessalonica and we have Berea. And what Luke wants us to do is to see the vivid contrast that he draws between these two groups of people, these two cities, and their response to the word of God. He uses that contrast to show us something vital for our own growth, something vital for us as we help others grow in Christ, and he also shows us why those things really matter. So let's begin in verses 2 and 3. Here we are. Uh, And Paul went in, this is in Thessalonica, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. One of the things that makes this, uh, this episode unique is the number of words that Luke uses to describe what Paul did in Thessalonica. Did you hear that? He was reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving. That's a, that's a word we could spend some time on. I hope you do in your community group uh, discussion. In, in, in most of the other missionary stories that we have, both be, before this and after this, Paul just speaks. At time, Luke sort of includes the whole sermon at, at time, but, but most of all, he just says, Paul opened his mouth and said, blah, 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 whatever he says. 
Why is Luke going out of his way to use all of these big, it reminds me of when I was, you know, a middle schooler and I discovered what a thesaurus was. I don't know if this ever happened to any of you, um, but I remember, you know, and I would walk up to my mom, mother, I endeavor to journey to the commerce center. You want to go to the mall? Okay, yes, that's what I meant. Uh, is that what Luke did here? Did he just get a little overexcited? No. He's making a point. He is drawing to our attention the pains that the apostle went through to convey the truth of the word to the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, I should say. He didn't just speak, he explained, he unpacked, he unfolded, he dialogued, he conversed one-to-one. He, he sought to understand where they were coming from, the, the struggles that they were having to believe. We'll talk about that more in a second. He delivered speeches, he debated, he, he asked questions about their views. He did everything he could do, humanly speaking, to help these dear people to see that Jesus is the one that the whole Bible is pointing to. This Jesus, he says, is the Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title. He is the one who the Bible is talking about. And, and what I want you to see is that Luke is emphasizing the ministry, in, the ministry of the Word, of the Word of God that Paul does and that we are called to do also in Thessalonica in all its various forms. Praise God. What a helpful point, even in isolation. The Word is powerful. You might be thinking that sounds like a lot of work for Paul. I agree, but that's my second point. We'll get there. But what then, if we're comparing and contrasting between Thessalonica and Berea, what then is the ministry of the word like in Berea? Let's look in verses 11 and 12. It says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. That's different, it's very different. Uh, in fact, you might notice, this is one of those little literary clues that when, when Paul described, or when Luke described Paul's missionary activity in Thessalonica, he used three words, remember? Three verbs, he reasoned, he explained, he proved. And in Berea, the, it was the people who received, who examined, and who sought to see. Again, three verbs to describe. He's intentionally drawing this comparison. He is inviting us to especially examine the difference in the way that they received the word of God. You notice in Berea, Paul isn't even mentioned. It doesn't even say what Paul did. It just says that the word was received. The emphasis is on how they received it. In Thessalonica, Paul labored, went crazy, doing everything he could. And in Berea, Paul isn't even mentioned. It, the emphasis is on how they received the word. And it's through that emphasis, Luke wants his readers back then to ask the question that now I will ask you. How is your relationship with the word of God right now? Perhaps you're here, you're, you're new to the Bible. You're, you're still learning, you're still getting oriented. You're still, it's a big book. Okay, praise God, I'm, I'm glad. Uh, maybe you need to get into a good rhythm. Maybe you're here and you, you're so familiar with the Bible that you feel like every time you open a passage, you do a, just the smallest eye roll in your soul thinking, I've read this before. Oh yeah, back to one of my old favorites, back to where I was before. Maybe uh, you need to think through, what would it look like? What's been different for me from 10 years ago to today? Maybe you're here and you're, you have a very complicated relationship with the Word of God because you're not sure if you believe it. 
when we look at Berea, when we look at Thessalonica, the question that God wants us to ask ourselves today is, what is our relationship with God's word? Now, and, and that is the first lesson I think we ought to learn from this passage, is that we must trust the word's power to transform us. Now, the, the point in that question is not sort of, are you perfect, are you there yet? When we talk about whole disciples, I, I worry sometimes that people think we mean complete, finished, done, wrong, no. <laughs> what it means is that uh, our trajectory is heading toward Christ. It's heading toward maturity. A whole disciple is not a perfect person, but someone who is taking the next step to learn Christ. And so we must learn to trust the word's power to transform us. And if we have these two examples, Thessalonica and Berea, which one do you think we're meant to uh, imitate? Berea, okay, you're following along. You are being like the Bereans. Okay, thank you for that illustration. Great, now uh, we have the name tags. I will be calling on people, so I hope that's okay. That was a sneaky, I'm just kidding, maybe. Uh, and so let's look, he, he uses these three words. Let's use them on ourselves. It says, first Luke says the Bereans were more noble more noble. In this context, that word means open-minded or fair-spirited or reasonable. The Bereans were open to being taught and instructed by the Bible, even though they clearly knew the Bible well already. They were open to reinvestigating what they thought that they already knew. The Bereans refused to come to the Bible with their own prejudices, their own lenses through which they read the Bible and refused all other ideas. They were willing to let the Bible set the agenda for their lives, even in how they read it. Now, most people, most Christians even, I believe are, are under the misconception that when we come to the Bible, we're basically doing the same thing that we're doing when we read a chemistry textbook. Sorry, Ned Bowden. <laughs> chemistry is super fun and cool. But when the Bible is read, preached, discussed, expounded, studied, meditated on, all the different ways that we can hear and receive God's word, it is not just humans learning facts, storing them in gray matter, and then retrieving them later for convenient use. Boring. <laughs> what happens when we read the Bible is far more interesting because God's word is transcendent and God actually plays a role in our understanding of the Bible anytime the Bible is opened and understood. Michael Horton says it this way, when the word is heard today, it is Christ who speaks. And, and you may be surprised that this is the, the view of Christians throughout the centuries has been that when Christians open the Bible and understand it is because Jesus, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies, is superintending his word so that when we read the Bible, when we read the Bible and understand it, it is because even as I speak right now, it is because Jesus himself wants us to understand it. I don't, I don't know if there's anything that, the, that God the Father is more invested in helping go well than when his people open his word. The wind is at your back. He is with you. If we are learning, it is because he is with us. I remember uh, not long ago, I was uh, facing struggles in my life and and really f not feeling a great sense of the presence of the Lord and, and there were issues that I was going through. And I remember uh, I needed encouragement from the Lord and I was seeking it and I was looking and going, going to all the familiar places in the Bible that you would go for encouragement. And I remember <laughs> this was so clearly the Lord that I, I just had to admit it. I was reading Psalm 40 and Psalm 40 
Verse 17 says this, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Uh, there, there must be a hundred other places in the Bible where basically that exact sentiment is raised, and I knew them, I had visited them, but in that moment, that was a lightning strike of God on my soul in that moment. It, it was, you remember what Jesus says to the devil when he is being tempted? He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It was that made visible and tangible to my soul. It brought me into weeping, laughing, spiritual renewal. Why? Because God himself, I'd read that verse before. So many of you, this has happened to you, has it not? A verse that's so familiar to you all of a sudden becomes white hot heat in your heart that you cannot stop. And that is not the exception, my friends. That is the rule. Whether we are aware of it or not, that is what God is doing in our hearts even as we speak. He is imprinting his image upon us anew. Let's be like the Bereans and receive the word nobly. Second, Luke says the Bereans received the word with all eagerness. Uh, some of you know I was on the track team at the University of Iowa. That was about 10 years and about 30 pounds ago. I won't tell you which direction. Uh, I threw the discus. That might give you a hint. Um, now, eventually, I gave up my dream of being famous every four years. But um, I really loved watching the sprinters, okay? They were dynamic athletes, obviously. They were incredible. I watched them every day in practice and all the drills they did, everything. It was just incredible. What I loved most was to watch them get into the starting blocks. Okay, this, is, this has to be one of the more tense moments in all of sports is when you have eight people, just the fastest, most twitchy sort of muscular people you've ever seen, coiling themselves up with just human potential energy into little springs that at, the, at moment's notice are ready to just explode with all of their energy when the starter's pistol goes off. They are the very image of eagerness, eagerness. Do you have eagerness for the word? A coiled up spring ready to pounce, to indulge, to pursue, to enjoy. If you don't, have you brought that to the Lord? Have you asked him to help you grow in that? Those athletes didn't, didn't get to that place because they just sat on the couch all day and decided one day to become fast. So also we must train ourselves to be hungry, to be uh, eager for the word. The Lord loves to answer that prayer. Would you make me eager for your word? Third, Luke says they examine the scriptures daily. Of course, this was a time when the Bible was not uh, available like it is today. I've, I've read that the average household has 4.3 Bibles. I don't know where that anyone got 0.3 of a Bible, but I believe it. Uh, the only copies of God's word were available in the synagogue for the most part, or in, in uh, a very wealthy person's home, maybe. And even then, maybe only one scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, the scroll of uh, Deuteronomy, something like that. Uh, today, we can gather around God's word whenever we please um, uh, with our community, with our people. Let's examine the scriptures daily. Let me ask you the question, and I'll set down this point here. The, the question I hope your community group leader asks you this week. What would a good next step look like for you in your relationship with God's word? Think about that one. So we must trust the word's power. Trust the word's power to transform you, first of all. 
Uh, you can probably guess where I'm going with the next one. But the, the book of Acts is given to us not just to form us to become whole disciples ourselves, uh, but as we know, we as a church, we exist to uh, glorify God through the whole church, every single one of us playing our part to form whole disciples of Jesus for the good of all people. And the book of Acts forms not just us in our character, but it also plays a role as sort of a missionary handbook for us to learn how we can help others learn Christ. So I'll, I'll direct you back to uh, Paul's approach in Thessalonica in verses 2 and 3. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And I'll point out straight away the principle that I want us to learn here. Uh, we must trust God's, the power of God's word to transform others. We must trust the word's power to transform others. You see those words, he reasoned, he explained, he proved his, his burden in Thessalonica was to demonstrate specifically that it was necessary. You see that word, necessary, for the Christ, that again, not a last name, but a title, an office in the Old Testament that would be God's chosen servant, sometimes called the Messiah, that's the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word, to suffer, to die. It was necessary for the Christ, God's chosen servant, who would bring about salvation, uh, who would restore Israel, to suffer to rise from the dead. This was Paul's burden was to prove that that fact was true. He follows it up by saying, this Jesus, that is Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, the guy not too long ago, back in, you remember Jerusalem, you heard about this guy, this is what he's saying, you heard he was crucified, uh, and yet it was so strange because people said he'd risen from the dead. It was true, and the one that you've read about your whole lives, uh, beloved Jewish people that he's speaking to, the one that you've hoped for, the one that you've dreamed of, that one day he would come, he would restore you, he would throw off the Roman oppressors, he would establish you. Jesus, that Jesus equals the one. He is the one. The one you've been expecting, he is the one that you have. And you might expect that because these people were steeped in what they called the Bible and we call the Old Testament, they would have been well-versed enough to know that when Jesus came, aha, there he is. And it would be sort of a slam dunk argument. Messiah equals Jesus. Done. Okay, great. Come with me. And some of them did. But many of them didn't. And the reason that Paul brings out this particular concern that, they, that he suffered, it was necessary for the Christ, the Christ, to suffer, to rise from the dead, was because for their culture, for first century Jews, this was a very difficult doctrine. The idea that the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the one whom God was blessing, would not flourish and build a tangible kingdom and throw off the Roman oppressors, but instead would be hated, rejected, killed, and buried. It did not fit. It, in fact, it was offensive. It was a barrier. It was a stumbling block, Paul would call it in 1 Corinthians 1. It was a, a barrier to them trusting Christ. If there had been, I've, I've read that if there were people less, there was never a people less willing to believe, first of all, that God could be a man, and second of all, that he would die. In their minds, the Messiah was supposed to be blessed. And so what, what are we supposed to do with this Jesus? He could only be a pretender. And so there was a barrier to their belief. And that, Paul does not tiptoe around it. Oh, Jesus loves you. God is great. Also, he died. 
He comes right after it. He goes straight for it. He's there for three weeks, and it's clear, as, as Luke tells us, this was a big topic of conversation. Why? <laughs> because if they were going to trust Christ, they would have to overcome that offensive issue. Paul knew that if they could only accept a Messiah on their own terms, according to their own cultural expectations for what blessing and freedom and salvation would look like, then they wouldn't be trusting Christ at all. They would be trusting their own judgment. There is only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus by whom every culture is simultaneously compelled and challenged at certain points, drawn to and offended by every, every single one. Make no mistake. Same is true for us today. Tim Keller calls these kinds of issues defeaters, barriers, uh, stumbling blocks. They are the fill in the blank for the sentence, I would become a Christian, but for them then, it was that the Messiah died, Jesus died, and so we can't have a Messiah who dies. Try again, barrier. I was talking with a friend, a church planner in France uh, this week, and he, he told me about, um, he was discipling a young man, and this young man was, uh, was asking him how he could answer his friend's question about Jesus. Um, the, this, this young man's friends were asking him, well, who was in the tomb with Jesus? I said, what? Who was in the tomb with Jesus? There must have been someone in there to roll the stone away and sort of carry his body off. Someone snuck in there. And so their barrier to belief was sort of a forensic uh, CSI kind of, they needed more evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that, that he wasn't pretending, he didn't take like too many beta blockers and fall asleep or something. I don't know what they thought. Um, they happened to be, uh, they, they were Muslims, and apparently it was not uncommon for them and for some of them that were teaching them to think there was sort of something, some funny business going on with the burial of Jesus. I'm guessing, probably not for not many of you, perhaps for some of you, that is a barrier to belief. For some of your coworkers and friends, maybe family members, you might know that your neighbors are not believers. Do you know why? Not why in general, but why in particular. What specific defeater are they dealing with? What is their answer to the fill in the blank? I would become a Christian, but a young man in our community group realized as he was talking about Christ with his coworkers, uh, the fact was that they saw Christian sexual teaching as fundamentally incompatible with their view of flourishing human life. They could not have a Jesus who says the kind of things that Jesus says uh, about their sexuality. And so his next step with Christ, as I talked with him, was that he realized he needed to learn. He needed to learn more, to be trained more, to know how best to do what Paul was doing here, to reason with them from the scriptures, to explain and prove uh, that, in fact, this does make sense. It is cohesive. Uh, that Jesus, he, he would not, let me put it this way. He, like Paul 2,000 years ago, could have papered over the difficulties. Let them have a Jesus on their terms, sort of settle for sort of a progressive new age Jesus. But we need the whole Jesus to be whole disciples. And what we find in the Bible is that Jesus offers true sexual freedom. And to hold that back from them would be to hold back Jesus. And so he's working to do like Paul, to reason with them from the scriptures, to show that Jesus, the way of Jesus is the way of blessing. 
several years ago, I was talking with a man who told me, uh, he raised this question with me, hey, he said, and we had been dialogue back and forth actually for years, and he said, hey, I, I read this story about a man who was on death row, and he had done horrendous crimes, I won't go into, he had done really evil things, um, and he was set to be um, executed. And he said he read the story that this man on death row, he repented. Uh, he had had a pastor come and visit him, and he, he said, I want to become a Christian. I see I've been a sinner. I, I trust Christ for salvation. And uh, he said, could he be for, possibly be forgiven? Could that actually be true? And I shared with him the story of the man on the cross next to Jesus who says, uh, you know, Will you, can I be with you today in paradise? Jesus says, you will be with me today in par paradise. I said, it's possible. I don't know his heart. The Lord knows his heart, but certainly possible. And he was enraged. How could freedom be that free? Doesn't God have any sense of justice, he said? If the gospel is really that free, I don't want it. Jesus had failed his test. He, he wanted a more conservative Jesus who was really tough on crime. But the whole Jesus, whom we find in the whole Bible, offers true justice and mercy all at once by dying for wretched sinners like us so that we can be forgiven and transformed. Are we able? Do, do we know? Perhaps a good step is, do we know what those specific things are that are stuck in the way of our friends and neighbors knowing and trusting Christ? And have we given prayerful effort to think about how we might reason with them faithfully from the Bible? Uh, to help them learn Christ. It might be reading a book about that issue. It might be something like that. Um, it might be sitting down and simply listening. What would happen if as a whole church, we decided to trust the Lord's power through his word to transform others? Let's all resolve right now that our neighbors, our neighbors will not go to hell without at least hearing God's argument for their soul. They must know we must tell them God has given us this task. We must trust God's word. Now, we might get a, Thess a, a, a Thessalonican reception. Run out of town. It's better than a cross. We might get the Bereans' reception. Their hearts may become open. They may be reasonable. Let's let them decide. Let's decide ourselves to be faithful. So we must trust the word's power to transform us we must trust the word's power to transform others. And finally, we must trust the word's power to transform everything. Another one of the unique things that we find in this passage is the specific charge that the angry mob make against the apostles. Look at verse 6 with me. It says this, When they could not find them, well, let me back up a little bit for some context. <laughs> But the Jews were jealous. This is after they saw, you know, their whole following basically evaporating in front of them. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Always these verbs in threes. Sorry, I can't help but notice. Okay. And they, they uh, oh boy, now I'm lost. Could not find him. Okay. Then they, they brought him before the city authorities, shouting, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. For decades, uh, the majority opinion of, of modern biblical scholarship, both in sort of people who believed what the Bible says and secular sort of suspicious people uh, who study the Bible for a living, was that the, the, 
their opinion generally was that the book of Acts was written as an apology, an, an apologetic for Christianity, with the fundamental thing being to, to defend Christianity from the charge that it was sort of a rabble-rousing, society-uprooting, uh, mayhem-inducing belief system. And therefore, Rome, please let us, please don't persecute Christians because we're really just here uh, to keep the peace. Christianity was still fighting for legitimacy, these people would say. Acts then was sort of intended to cast the faith in this positive light, and especially to sort of minimize the appearance of any threat to the established order, especially the order in Rome. And that, for decades, has, had been the opinion. Recently, that's changed, mostly because of passages like this. And the scene in Athens that is to come, where, Jesus, where, uh, where Paul challenged the religious leaders on their presuppositions about what was possible for God to do and for him to be, before long will come then to Ephesus, where those who believe in Jesus would gather together, and uh, not a mob, but in a group of faithful disciples, would take their books of magical incantations and burn them in the city streets, uh, a, a fortune worth upwards of $6 million. We could go back in the book of Acts. We could think of Lydia and the jailer in Philippi. We could think of the enslaved fortune teller who was set free. All over the place, the gospel, by God's spirit, is bringing unprecedented freedom to people enslaved and blind and bound, and it is putting the status quo in serious jeopardy. Think about it. Could Lydia, the influential businesswoman, the, the cultural leader, could she ever do business the same way again when, when God had opened her heart and her eyes to see who Jesus was? What, what about those who came to that enslaved fortune teller to see what the future might hold, who were being controlled by a demonic spirit through her? Where would they go now? They were no longer, longer under that influence. How would they live then? What about the Philippian jailer, just to use our most recent examples? Could he ever treat inmates the same way again? The justice system was being changed. The marketplace was being changed. The place people went in their folk religion to find wisdom and guidance. Philippi was being turned upside down from the inside out. And, and what of these leading Greek women and men who, who just trusted Jesus? What was going to happen in Thessalonica? What was going to happen in Berea? The same thing that happened. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and they're saying there's another king, Jesus. They spoke truer than they knew, amen? There is another king, and his reign will make every other king, every other human earthly king, look impotent and futile and weak and small in comparison, because Jesus has come, not to turn the world upside down, but to turn it right side up. May this charge be made of us. <laughs> May this charge be made against us. Our, our world needs to be flipped. And how did this happen? How did this happen? It's because God's people trusted God's word, God's transforming word. They trusted the word's power to transform everything. God wants to start a revolution through his people, through our little lives, when everyday people like you and me begin to trust the word's power, we are no longer little people. We are a powerful instrument of redemption in the hand of a mighty and wise God who intends to bring freedom to many.
I do not know what God has in store for you this week. But I know, because God's word is true and powerful, that if we trust it, who knows what will happen. But we know it will be good. And God, as he begins even now to turn this world as it ought to be, right side up, he is doing so through a strange kind of king who has come to us, not riding on a stallion conquering, but being conquered for us, being put on a cross for us, and rising in power. His kingdom is coming. Let's play our part. Will you pray with me? Lord, would you please, please make us like Paul, reliant on your word, on your power through your word. You are powerful through your word. Help us to trust your word to transform us. Even now, Lord, in our minds, would you make clear at least one way that we could grow in trusting your word to transform us? Help us to find someone to share that with, to encourage us, to encourage them. Lord, give us also compassionate hearts of love and spiritual initiative for our neighbors and friends, coworkers, and so forth, to help them learn Christ um, by trusting your power to transform them, doing all that we can do humanly to reason with them, that Christ is the ultimate source of all that they are looking for on his terms. Make us faithful, local missionary people for Jesus, knowing what defeaters and fears stop them from trusting you. Help us to take steps to sympathize and challenge. And Lord, may this charge against those brothers all those years ago be made of us, Lord, that the world-changing power of the gospel would be made manifest through us, through this church. Help us to see fruit of your spirit and your powerful word. Help us now to rejoice as we turn back to you in worship through song that you have turned the world upside down, inside out. The kingdom was here and yet to come and you have a a role for us, little us, (laughs) to play in it. Help us to rejoice in that now, we pray. Amen.